Okay. So one of the issues that I am furiously trying to put together in my brain is the relationship between faith and reason. Seems like somewhere along the line, we used to think that Jesus was a genius who understood better than anyone else how life worked best, and he was the expert on the most important subject matters of life, Jesus. Jesus was the genius who was the expert on the most important subject matters of life. And the Bible was an inspired, authoritative book about the most important matters of life. Nowadays, it seems that people think that the Bible is an impossible-to-interpret book that you should leave to the professionals. And, and science is the realm of truth. Psychology is the realm of truth. Economy, uh, economics is the realm of truth. Politics is the realm of truth. And, and faith is the realm of stories that are symbolic and clergy are the ones who help uh, tell symbolic stories to help people manage their fear of death. But if you actually want to navigate life and reality, that's the last place you want to go. Does that sound familiar? And so what it used to be is those who knew the Lord the most were the most trusted to help you have wisdom practical for your life. But not anymore. Now, the best you can hope for, I'm talking about in, in, the, in sort of the consciousness of our culture, the best you can hope for is incremental, slight alleviation of your symptoms through huge amounts of expensive counseling and maybe medicine to dull the pain. But what you can't expect is transformation and freedom. That's fairy tales. And anyone who says different is selling something. You, you hear what I'm, what I'm throwing down? All right, so here's a question. What I wrote on the board is a question. When I finally blank, then I'll be happy. So take a good 30 seconds or whatever. Maybe take out your phone and write the question down. And give an honest answer, not a Sunday school answer. Don't tell me what, I'm, what you're supposed to say. You know what I'm saying, the Sunday school answer. What's brown and small and furry and has a big bushy tail and lives in trees? And the kid's like, is that me? And the kid's like, nobody answers. And finally, the Sunday school teacher's frustrated. Come on, guys. Lives in trees. It's brown. It's small. It's furry, big bushy tail. What am I talking about? And the kid's like, ah, sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. Because we're in church, so we're supposed to say those answers, right? So when I finally fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. 
Don't give me your Christian answer. Give me your honest answer. That, that sounded wrong. <laughs> that, came, that came out wrong. Who needs more time? Oh, everyone, still, everyone already has an answer? All right, you don't, don't, I'm not going to ask anyone to tell their answers here. I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> what have you already had? I still say, I think it's the wrong question. <laughs> I'm like dumbfounded, honestly. <laughs> like, what would your answer be? I just can't even. What? I don't know. <laughs> but don't we all have those times hmm. when we're like, oh, I wish I was a better one? I don't know. So I'm not. We should have to give our answers. <laughs> oh, oh, you want them to give their answers? I want you to think about it right now. And I want you to take the question home and think about it. Is that sometimes some kind of question I ask myself to ask? Is that like, I don't know. It's well, think about it. Well, think about it's it. Just, I might physically be better than what I, yeah, that's true. That's true. Know, that that so what we're going to do is we're going to critique the question a little bit here. Right? I'm going to say some things and then I'm going to do something that, that I think is important. And that is I'm going to argue against myself. Do you do that? Do you, do you argue against your theories? There you go. That's a good, that's a good, that's good. Define happy. There's one. That's good. So, so before, you, before Rusty wants to answer this question, he wants greater clarity as to what exactly are we asking. What do you mean by happy? You mean walking around with a big idiot grin on my face all the time and never crying? Do you mean a, a quality of life that the Bible would call blessed? Do you, what do you, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Contentment, do you mean, do you mean a contentment like the what I just asked you guys to pray for me about? Or do you mean like, uh, like uh, the Stoics, the ancient Greek Stoics? They, they believed that, uh, our lot in life is to figure out, we can't really know much about the next life, but we know we're here now. So let's figure out how we can make the best of it, make the most of it. Is that what we mean by happy? Make the best of it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. What do we mean? That's a good question. What do you mean happy? Before I read the next little chunk, anyone else want to make a comment or make a statement or push back? Or When I finally fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. Say it again, Stan. Half a page of stuff. It could be, couldn't it? Some people, some people would answer this way. When I finally retire from my stupid job, I'll be happy. Some people say when I finally graduate high school, I'll be happy. Some people say, when I finally get a wife, I'll be happy. Some people say, when I finally am able to have kids, I'll be happy. 
Some people say, if I could just get a pay rise, pay raise here, I would be happy. Some people would say, if my cancer was healed, then I'd be happy. If I could bring my wife back from the dead, then I'd be happy. If I could just get rid of all the death in the world, then I'd be happy. If I could just stop sinning, if I could get free of alcohol, then I'd be happy. There's a lot of answers to these questions. And, I, and I, what I'm looking for is the honest answers to the question. And I'm not necessarily tonight, like, but these questions drive me. Okay. So even in the midst of frustration or waiting for a diagnosis yeah, or to yeah. be healed, we, we still could be happy. Some people would say, when I finally get to heaven, I'll be happy. Yeah, I've heard people say that before. And some people would say, I'm happy now, even though the world's a broken place. Because I'm, I'm happy and grieving at the same time, and that's okay. Right? There's plenty of ways you can answer this question. I'm not interested in a right answer. I'm interested in an honest answer. I like questions like this because they get us digging a little bit. Yeah, they're digging deeper. Like, am I truly happy? <laughs> See, that's it. To me, this is like a what if question, and I don't do what if questions, you know, because I learned a long time ago not to do what if. You know, that was crazy. In, in other words, your way of answering the question would be, I'm going to define what I'm, what I'm goal, my, my goal is really careful because this, if I make being happy, and pursuing the thing I'm going to put in the blank, right, right. my thing in life, that could be dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. You're actually smelling what I'm trying to emit. Say again. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, just say, I'll read the next yeah. thing. I'll read the next thing because I think Tina's probably tracking with, with why I want to keep asking questions like this. Whatever you put in that blank is what you're pursuing, putting your hope in, putting your faith in. That is your functional God. Do you know what I mean by functional God? Okay. In the ancient world, they worshiped all kinds of gods. There was a God of war. There was a God of of beauty. There was a God of of fertility. There was a God of romance. There was a God of of, uh, pretty much just about everything. And the reason that they had a God and a temple and a cult and a priesthood for just about every kind of factor and feature of life is because humans have a tendency to make everything into an, every good thing into an ultimate thing. Our culture has romance as a God. And, and what happens when you submit yourself to God When you submit yourself to God and you make wise choices, romance might result. It might. It's not guaranteed, but it might. But if you make romantic fulfillment the thing that you believe will fulfill you as a human, you've taken something that's a part of life and you've made it the main thing in life. Am I making sense yet? Or do I need to to back up a little bit more? So what we humans do is we tend to make good things ultimate things, which is to say, we make gods out of everything. And, and, and the human heart is a desire factory. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is impossible to have a human not have treasures. 
You could take away all the stuff on the planet, we would still have treasures. There would be, we would attach our, our affections to something and whatever we attach our affections to, we would, we would, we would seek it. And, and um, big difference between desiring something and loving something, right? When I desire something, I want it. When I love something, I will what is best for it. Totally different things. Totally, completely different things. So um, romance is like the is huge one in our culture. And so romance, we, we, what we often do is we, we mistake lust and uh, affection and desire for love. And, and when, yeah, it's just, it's a whole thing. I don't want to get off on the, on the sidetrack too much, but the things that we are looking to to bring us fulfillment in life. They're the thing we're seeking more than anything else. And if anything tries to get that away from us, that becomes our enemy, right? So whatever is in this blank, I would say that's your, that's your, that's your little G God. Or it could be God. It could be really God. Like you could say, when I finally know God, I'll be happy. Well, that's not idolatry, is it? There's something really healthy about that. But if it's something else, it's an idol. Okay, I'm gonna just stick to this here. Whatever you put in the blank is what you're putting your faith in. That's your functional God. The big difference between something, you can say God's my God, but the thing you trust in, love, pursue, hope in, think will make you happy, think will save you from whatever your functional hell is, that's your God. Do you know what I mean by functional hell? It's the person who says, if, if I could just find a spouse, then I would be fulfilled. What's your functional hell? Singleness or a lack of romance or whatever that thing is. And anyone who could get in the way of you finding a spouse is your functional devil. And anyone who would help you find that spouse is your functional savior. Are we tracking? Who's with me at least understands the concept I'm trying to, trying to lay out? Oh, you're tracking, okay. I thought you had a comment. Okay, so that's your functional God, and what it brings you is your functional heaven. Last Sunday, you probably heard me say, heaven's not for people who believe the right things. Heaven's for people who love God. And people who've said a prayer but don't love Jesus would hate heaven. They could be doctrinally, you know, orthodox Christians, but unless their heart is orthodox... They'll hate heaven. The grass will hurt their feet. The light will be too bright. The singing will drive them crazy. They'll wish they were somewhere else. You could take people in hell and put them in heaven. They would hate it because they love all the wrong things. They're the, they're the wrong kind of being because the gospel's about becoming something else by grace. And so this question is designed to figure out like what is it we're becoming and what is it we're pursuing? What is it we're attached to? What is it we're seeking? What is it we're putting trust in? What is it our heart is oriented around? What, is it, what are our thoughts fixating on? What are we scared of and seeking? Remember last time we, we put the three words? Yeah. Right? Whatever you love, you'll pursue. Whatever you trust, you'll rely on, dependent, and whatever you fear, you'll seek to avoid. Those three words are really big at helping us figure out what's going on in here. Right? There's, it's, there's, there's monotheism. There's monotheism, which, which what does anybody, somebody define that for me? That one 
right? The Bible says, how many gods are there? Well, some places it says there's one, and some places it says there's many, right? There are many gods, there are many lords, but for us, there's only one, Jesus and his Father and the Spirit. And the thing is, the other gods, they're not gods at all. So there's really only one, but again, there's many. Just the others aren't the real God. But people function like they are. Because there's a difference between monotheism of the head, where you say there's one God, with your lips and with your brain, kind of, and what the Bible actually wants, which is monotheism of the heart, which is not just to say there is only one God. Monotheism of the heart is to say, I only have one God. You catching what I'm saying? I have one God. My trust is in God. I actually am fulfilled in him. I actually view him as the source of my fulfillment. He is, my delight is in, is in him. What did I say on Sunday? Trust Jesus for what? It doesn't matter. What matters is trusting Jesus. If you trust Jesus, then you'll trust him with all the details. The details are not the issue. You know, all the details of the promises are not as important as the one who promises. He is the treasure. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, dwell in your house all my days, behold the beauty of the Lord. Why? Because in your presence is fullness of joy, your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When that stops being theory and becomes reality, that's monotheism of the heart. Not to just say, I think there's one God, but to actually trust God instead of all the stuff, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those things are what the Bible calls worldliness. James is clear, you can't have friendship with the world and friendship with God at the same time. You gotta make a clean break. And like Linda and I were talking about money, the love of money is a part of that lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Because money promises you safety, safety, power, status, security. Is money evil? Well, no. Love of money is evil. Why? Because the Bible says greed is idol worship. Again, it's not monotheism. Greed is not monotheism. It's idol worship. Okay, back to the page and the question. When I finally blank, then I'll be happy. Whatever you put in the blank is what you're putting your faith in. That's your functional God. And what, and, and what it brings you is your functional heaven. And how you feel when it doesn't happen is your functional hell. And whoever is keeping you from getting it is your functional devil. And whoever's helping you get there, that's your functional savior. Or whatever. And whoever steps in the way, oh man, and this kind of, you know, right? So two people are going through the same thing. Two people going through the same thing. One person seems able to forgive. The other person is crippled with bitterness. Why? The one crippled with bitterness has an idol somewhere that's blocking that forgiveness. Tim Keller, I love Tim Keller. He tells the story. Two worthless husbands with godly wives with sons that are both pagan. In both instances, the, the wives have the opportunity to blame the dads for the son's waywardness. 
The wife with the better husband can't forgive. The wife with the worse husband forgives. The difference is, the wife that couldn't forgive has made a god of her son. Her son is her functional God. Who's tracking with what I'm saying? Good things can become ultimate things. Blessings can become, can actually displace God in our affections. And the way to tell is what it feels like when you lose it. Or when you think you will. Yeah. And, you know, there's cultural idols. Those are different locally, depending on your local culture. Right? In New York, they ask how much you make. In uh, Baltimore, what do they ask? Who you know? In Philly, what do they ask? That's good. But the idol is different depending where you are. (laughs) I love a good cheesesteak, man. There's another thing called chicken cheesesteak. That's good too. But the idols are different. If, if, If you're in secular urban culture, people will sacrifice their kid on the altar of career. But you go out to Kansas City, you know, or you got somewhere in the country, they'll sacrifice everything on the altar of kids and family, marriage and family. I'm sorry, Pastor, I can't come to church. My kids and I, we're going fishing. All right. Maybe that's not the best example, but I'm just saying. Christian culture, conservative Christian culture, idolizes marriage and family. Secular culture idolizes career over marriage and family. Both of them are idols. Now, There's political idols too, but I'm not touching it tonight. But there's cultural idols, there's religious idols. Different churches have different idols. Some some churches idolize the preacher. Some churches idolize various traditions. Some churches idolize various specific pet belief systems. And if you touch that that thing, whew, you can tell you've touched someone's idol when when they raise up their pitchforks. When Gideon, remember when Gideon topples the Asherah pole over and destroys the, the, the altars that were for Baal, the next morning, the people of the towns, the townsfolk came out and what did they say? They said to, to, to Gideon's dad, give us your boy, we're going to kill him. When you mess with people's idol, the altar to the idols, they want to kill you. There's, there's all right, I said there's three, three kinds. Cultural idols, religious idols. And then there's personal idols. Got to put a little bit of sugar in that medicine though, right? Because if you are a faithful gospeler, you won't just tell people the parts of the faith they want to hear and that they like to hear and that meet their felt needs. You'll tell people the parts of the faith that step on the toes of their functional idols, their cultural, religious, and personal idols. Because the idols always steal us from freedom. The reason God is so against other gods 
is because he loves you and he wants you free. And the idols always enslave us. They always enslave us. They never make us free, powerful people. They never make us free, powerful people who are capable of walking in love. They always make us stuck in some kind of slavish servitude to where we can't live fully the love and trust of a disciple. That's exactly right. And God's the only being that I know of that when he demands we love him more than anything else, he's actually seeking what's best for us. If you said that to me, I'd be like, "Mm, I don't know about that. But when when he commands us to love him completely, it's because he alone is loving and all the idols are not. And all the people that we idolize are not. I don't know how we got here, but we're talking about idols. You got any pushback so far? Let me add another piece. Either you will seek fulfillment in knowing Jesus. It's a strong statement. I'm going to make a strong statement. Maybe too strong. But I'm talking to myself. Either you will seek fulfillment in knowing Jesus or nothing else you achieve in his name will ever be enough for you. Is it an overstatement? Either you will seek fulfillment in knowing Jesus or nothing else you achieve in his name will ever be enough for you. Yeah, but if you're fulfilled, you're, you, you um, repeat it again. Either you will seek fulfillment in knowing Jesus or nothing else you achieve in his name will ever be enough for you. But you won't be achieving anything in his name if you don't already have sort of the fulfillment or already seeking the fulfillment of Jesus because you're not really going to do anything in his name until... So what I hear you saying is when you're finding your satisfaction in knowing him, it will actually provoke doing things in his name. I like that. That's not really a pushback. It's a clarification. I got some strong pushbacks to my statement. Well, I say this question that you're asking, I would never ask. <laughs> the way you put things is like, that's, I, same way Belinda, I know what she's thinking. Like, yeah. She wouldn't think about this question at all because she wouldn't put something in front of that being making her happy. You know, that, that would be not something she would be thinking because in her mind, she's not going to think negative or try not to think negative. You know, she's always yeah. going to think, uh, I, I don't know how, you know, but I just, this isn't a question she would ask either. <laughs> but people's fruit reveals that oftentimes, what topples you? What, what freaks you out? What causes you to misbehave? What causes you to have no peace? What causes you to lose sleep? What causes you to um, uh, lie to your spouse and rack up credit card debt? Like these things reveal our functional gods. They expose us. And the whole time that you're doing that, you might not be thinking, I'm seeking something other than Jesus as my God but your life's exposing that it is, right? That's what, so this question is not designed to, uh, this question is just designed for a, a gut check. Uh, but like fruit, fruit is always to point us back to a root. 
right? Like we took the whole fruit of the spirit class, not so we'd have nine more laws to follow. Because the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Faithfulness, come on, brain, you can do it. Gentleness and self-control. Against these kinds of things, there's no law, right? And the whole point of the class was not do these things, but the lack of these things reveals we're not in the spirit because they are the automatic result of being in the spirit. That was the point of the class, I think. And we wanted to clearly define them so that we could see whether or not there's a root somewhere missing, rooted in the wrong thing and go back and learn, okay, in this area, all right, something's missing here in my abiding, right? I'm nodding at you like that's gonna somehow make you agree. <laughs> all right, so here's you know, my pushbacks. Of, as, as you get more into God and you mature, you're gonna, that, these things are gonna be less also. Yes, 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 that's right. You know? Yeah, so. yeah, that's right. Here's some pushbacks that I have. She's saying you'll have less foreign, your affections will, will actually, the, as, you, as you know Jesus, as you, know, as you walk, grow in your union with Christ, the idols will begin to fall off, fall and be uprooted. And sometimes they're revealed first, then we cry out for them to be removed. And the Lord then removes them graciously. Uh, I think all of us wish that on day one, they all just came out. Yeah. I don't think that's how it works because he loves our participation in the renovation process. That's what this is. It's a renovation process. We're, we're, we're a home that he purchased and now we're being renovated fit for a king. The crazy thing is he's already come in and taken up residence. We're not waiting for him to, I don't know, some future day take up residence. He's taken up residence and he's renovating. And we're, and we're cooperating with his renovation work, you know? Okay, so here's my pushback. Yeah, but Tim, uh, you're saying that if knowing Jesus doesn't satisfy me, nothing else I do in his name ever will. Aren't you forgetting that he designed us for good works? What if I'm discontent in a good way because I'm yearning for my calling in the world? That would be one piece of pushback. We're made to co-labor with Jesus. And if we're sitting around passive just in the prayer closet all the time, just reading theology and going to church, instead of doing our calling in the world, we're gonna be discontented, Tim. That's a good point, good point, Tim. Disagreeing with the other Tim. Another pushback, because we're made for fellowship with each other. You just said that if we're, we're fulfilled in knowing God, uh, then that'll be the thing. But, but Adam had a perfect relationship with Abba in the Garden of Eden, and he was lonely for Eve, and he didn't even know there was such a thing as an Eve yet. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. You can have a per perfect walk with God, but there could still be a, a human-shaped hole in your heart because you were also made for community. Good point, Tim. Thanks, Tim. More pushback. We are in a broken world and a fallen world. The spirit that birthed us into fulfillment in Jesus also birthed us into deep, dissatisfied groaning because the kingdom is not as much being presented here as it should be. We're in a broken world. You're telling me I'm supposed to be happy when my home, it says, is in heaven and my savior, I know he said that 
I'll never leave you or forsake you. But he also said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Aren't we longing for his appearing? Isn't it okay to yearn and long like, like a bride whose husband is in active duty on, on a tour somewhere in some foreign soil and she's just longing for her husband to return? Isn't it okay if the bride of Christ is longing for Jesus to return like, like a soldier from a war? He is actually seated in heaven waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. He is actually on the warpath right now. Okay, I'm almost done. Those are just some of my pushbacks to say, <sighs> let me see if I can shut it down. I think it's extremely important as you're working on a theory, like a theory is not just like a, a human idea. A theory is a concept that helpfully pulls together the best way possible, the truths about how things are. That's what a theory is. It's the it's a best way of trying to make sense of all these different truths, right? And as we're working on a theory from the raw material of the Bible, I think it's really important that we push back at our theories and question them, find the holes in them, find the flaws in them. And instead of defending them, let, let the pushback change the shape of the thing until it finally is at peace with more biblical data. It's really normal for us humans once we have an idea to defend it instead of improve it. It's really dumb, but it's really human. All right, so that, those are just some questions to send you home with that, that Tina's like, I don't want that question. When I finally fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. And then, of course, I filled it in with all these other clarifying uh, things. But I'm telling you what, guys, human hearts are idol factories. And, and God's not, it, it, think about this, in Europe, in Europe, every single person, no matter the country, for hundreds of years, it was assumed they were all Christians. They were baptized as babies, had Christian funerals, had Christian weddings. The priests were always around them. How many of those people are in heaven? How many of those people are in hell? How many of those people had sound doctrine in their head, so to speak, but they never knew, loved, savored, treasured? Now, I don't have the answer to those questions, but those are really important questions. Soren Kierkegaard wouldn't call himself a Christian in his generation because when he looked around, he said everybody calls himself a Christian. We all imagine if Jesus were to show up on the scene, we'd love him, instantly recognize him, fall at his feet and worship him and say, I'm so glad you're here. But the truth is, if he showed up, we would probably hate him, kill him, crucify him and be very threatened by him. We all imagine we're the good guys because we're morons who have no self-awareness, no ability to challenge and question our own motivations and assumptions. So he refused to call himself a Christian because he thought that was such a bold, overly arrogant, presumptuous claim. Instead, he said, shouldn't my life, shouldn't my life, not my mouth, but my life, be thrown out in radical dependence and surrender? You shouldn't have to ask me if I'm a Christian. My life should tell you I'm a Christian because I'm so completely dependent on, delighted in, obedient to, saturated with him. 
If anyone has to ask, I probably ain't. Now I'm like, Kierkegaard, you're going, you're going a little crazy. But I love that guy. I love that guy. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs>